This episode is sponsored by Dash of Pride, a specialty store for LGBTQ plus weddings, special events, and everyday life. They carry all of your decor and accessory needs, not just rainbows. Check them out at their website at www.dashofpride.com or follow them on Instagram at Dash of Pride. Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. Hey, India, how are you doing? Hey, Aubrey, I'm doing good. I did want to um, bring in my friend Jessica on the podcast. Um, Not only because I wanted to highlight musicians of color on stages, but also I love her energy. She's so lovely to be around and her story is really inspiring to me. I I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that Jessica's now partner was one of the first trans people I met, female to male, um, when I first moved to the U.S. And I truly had no idea that they were trans and it at the time blew my mind. I had only ever met male to female trans people. And even back then, I wasn't as well acquainted with what it means really to be trans. Um, And when it comes to F to M, female to male, I had so much prejudice information and preconceived notions of what a trans person was supposed to look like. And I say that in air quotation marks. And honestly, all of my, it was wrong judgment that I had. And they might not know this, um, and I'm not super close with them, but they were the first couple that I witnessed and had mutual friends, and they really broke those biases that I had and a lot of my ignorance. Um, Their story was one of many that opened the floodgates for me to really understand more about the trans community. And as I expressed previously, I think it's really important to... Uh, bring in partners of trans people, because I think trans voices are being heard, but I also think partners of trans people need to be heard as well. Um, And Jessica's a lovely human, and I'm thrilled to bring them on here, and I'm hopefully their story will help others, um, like it helped me in other ways, or help other people who have trans partners out there. I just think that's so interesting, and I know one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to Jessica is because so many of the stories and articles and so much of the narrative around being the partner of someone who's trans, uh, those the people who are interviewed tend to be uh, white women. Mm-hmm. And Jessica is a person of color. And I do think that does kind of change the conversation a bit. So many of the trans partnership stories are from a more Anglo perspective. And when you bring in race, it does create a new dynamic to the conversation. Because not only is Jessica pansexual, but now they're an interracial couple. 
and well, they've always been an interracial couple, but I just think it's just a very interesting topic to explore a little bit further. Yes. So let's talk to Jessica. While performing in various classical orchestras and chamber ensembles, Jessica Masser noticed the lack of representation of music, musicians of color on the stages of her professional engagements. That observation led her to work for Atlanta Symphony's talent development program, the Atlanta Music Project, and the Atlanta University Center Consortium, Morehouse College, Spelman College, and Clark Atlanta University, with the goals of helping the careers of young musicians of color. Jessica is currently the manager of an after-school jazz program within the Savannah Music Festival organization that serves underserved communities. When not managing an after-school music program, Jessica is still an active performing cellist with Atlanta Celli, the Savannah Philharmonic Orchestra, the New Arts Ensemble, and other re regional groups. She is married to her partner, Ethan, and is a very proud mom of a college sophomore, a high school junior, three cats, and a pug. Woo! Welcome, Jessica. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you for having me today. Amazing so, bio. Hi, welcome. So excited and so happy to see your face again. It's been too long. <laughs> Way too long. Yeah, Mary, thank you so much for, you know, asking me to be on because then if not, I wouldn't have been able to see you again. <laughs> it's been so long. And Aubrey, thank you so much for having me as well. It's oh. a pleasure to meet you. I am delighted to talk to you. I, I just, I'm so delighted to talk to you. This just is such a big deal for me. <laughs> so we like to ask our guests uh, can you tell us how you identify and why is that identity important to you um, also what pronouns do you prefer as a cis female um and uh, i identify as pansexual very nice very cool thank you so can you tell us a little bit about your coming out story and how does it incorporate in the self? Oh, um, gosh, there's so many things that weave into that. Um, yeah. you know. um, so I came out uh, probably, it was like mid-2000s. Um, I had, at that time, had both of my, my children. Um, and I was married to their father. And I had it's interesting my parents now say like oh when you had said this or had done this was that like what was going on then was that was what was going on with like your gay identity I was like yes um but I of course didn't recognize that until later on and um so my daughter attended this uh daycare and there was a woman there that I had such a crush on but I didn't realize I had a crush on until I finished talking to her and I would be all like giddy and like I would recognize that I was being giddy with her um and I, I just didn't think to put two and two together and so on around the time of like Valentine's Day my um then husband uh, so my ex-husband had purchased um the L word as a birthday gift huh. and I'm looking at it like you know what this is right and he had no idea and of course I'm like well I'm gonna watch it because I'd heard about it um you know the L word being the showtime and I didn't we didn't have showtime then so he had purchased like DVDs 
And so I got to watch all of them. And the more I'm watching it, the more I'm like, oh my God, you know, like this is, this is something one, I completely identify with. And two, this is really provoking me to think about how I want to continue living, um, which was really mm-hmm. difficult at the time because of having two young kids and of course being entwined and like, you know, married with somebody. And so basically I, after a few months, I decided to confront um, him at the time. And um, it was it was hard. Uh, it was really difficult to hear. And it was difficult to share, especially to be not only vulnerable, but also to say that, like, I can't continue this relationship. Um, and so fast forward, I think now it's been 11 years. Um, you know, so much has changed in the sense of like, I had dated other people um, and now I, you know, got married and um, the person that I had married um, was then uh, a a cisgender female um, and then had transitioned. So there was all those layers that had happened. But one of the interesting things of when I came out was that my family hated it. They did not talk to me for like a year or they would talk to me, but it would be like no eye contact. There'd be very little texting or calling, uh, which was really unfortunate. It was really heartbreaking, but I kind of anticipated it. Mm. Um, I also didn't know how hard it would hurt until it actually happened. But then over time, it's like they kind of started getting used to the idea. And then um, we'd told my family that, um, that my partner was gonna, going to transition uh, from um, female to male. And it, I was thinking, oh my gosh, it's gonna be so awful. It's gonna be, it's just, they're not, now they're really gonna not talk to me. They're really not gonna wanna text or call ever again. And they were the happiest they had ever been. Really? Really. Right, you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, and it was because, <laughs> right. Now they were going to get to use, with their daughter in context, um, male pronouns as her partner or her soon-to-be husband. So they could use all these male pronouns that then fit more of that heteros, you know, heterosexual normative lifestyle that you know, really encompasses um, the nation, but more so the South. Um, you know, it, I also came from um, a family that were both in the military and that's actually how they met mm-hmm. um so you have that added layer of like the military lifestyle on top of being a southern person my father was born and raised in atlanta um and so there was there was that whole aspect of it and then also on top of it there's a race aspect of it um, my father's an african-american man and then my mother is a filipino woman um mm-hmm. so there's like these different there's dual cultures that were being blended but really I have to say the the interesting thing was the fact that we lived in the south I felt was a a very influential thing on how they reacted Um, so it became easier for them with Ethan when he started adopting male pronouns it became easier for them as opposed to them seeing you with someone who would look traditionally female basically correct Interesting. And so you're black and Filipina, correct? Correct. You're black black and Filipina? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Cool. That's what your Instagram told me. So (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I guess I have like so many follow-up questions, but Jessica, how did that 
change your identity. Like when I think of the L word in my own experience and how I'm relating with you, I'm like, oh yeah, I was married to a man as well. And then watching the L word, I was able to see my own experience kind of reflected in Jenny's story. Um, and then later I was like, hmm, never mind, <laughs> we're not the same. Um, but it, you know, I was so excited to come out as a lesbian and have that identity. Did your identity change? Because I think that our own identities um, and labels can be, you know, annoying, but they're also fluid. Um, you know, at the beginning, when Aubrey asked you how you identify, you said pansexual. Did you know that back then? Or did that, was that a second coming out for you? Oh, that was definitely a later on second kind of coming out, um, especially with my partner transitioning. Um, I had very heavily identified um, as a lesbian. Um, it could have also been with the idea that I'm going to get to explore something that was completely new and I really kind of wanted to dive into it. Um, and um, so I, I really embraced a lesbian identity because I also didn't know it. So I wanted to understand it. Um, so when I was watching the L Word, yes, I saw some very some parallels um, with with people's stories, and um, of course there were many characters in there that just went off the deep end, and you're like, what? I wouldn't even see this in real life. Um, <laughs> I saw myself in real life in some of the characters, and um, in the beginning, yes, I totally identified as a lesbian. Um, it was something that I embraced, but I also was very scared about because I was still married, um, you know, and having to go through a divorce and how the South works on how divorce, um, how the divorce process worked, depending on who was like, um, you know, just responsible for the divorce or who would be filing for it. So I was very, very um, apprehensive to go through that whole process. But also I was super excited to like discover this identity. Um, but then I, I, I think that when my, identity started to shift was when I actually was like kind of defending my identity identity as a lesbian um, because I felt like with my partner transitioning I was like wait a minute that doesn't make sense you know like I was getting almost the feedback that I would get from like society and culture people are like oh you're not a real lesbian now or oh now if you're going to be with a man like oh you're going to be looked at as heterosexual and I mean we still get looked in, in you know that that's what people see us as at first glance so at that time during transition or his transition um being a lesbian was like this really like I was really defending it because I I just identified so well with it and like you said about labels through thinking through all of that, that I realized that labels aren't really important. However, they can be important to the sense of like, you know, for example, my name, my name, Jessica is somewhat of a label. That is what the name I identify as. And so here I am trying to figure out this label <laughs> as a lesbian and trying to defend it because everybody else was telling me that I wasn't really a lesbian anymore. And so I had to figure out how like whatever I identified as was my identity. It was going to be nobody else's. And if I wanted to label it, that's my prerogative. And if other people don't want to label it, that's their prerogative. And have to be like, okay with that. You know, you can't control all the things. And so 
when coming out to my family, I recognized that I could not control how they reacted. And it was very apparent when they acted positively towards my partner transitioning. Um, and so I started to get a little bit more, um, I don't know, I, I guess I just didn't look so internally like, you know, my identity is gonna ruin things or change a lot of things. And so then that's when like the identity of something or of labels aren't necessarily that important sometimes to me. However, when I shifted into being pansexual, it was something definitely to help explain, um, which I can talk about later, of um, why our lifestyle was the way that we were we were living um, after we had uh, gotten married. That sounds cryptic. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I think w one of the things that I, I think is difficult with labels, and correct me if you feel differently, but the community that comes with it. And with a lot like you, like I hear you, the divorce process was terrifying to do in the state of Georgia. Um, it, it actually ended up not being that scary, but like reading about it and understanding the ins and outs of it and who had to do what and what that meant for my ex-husband and, it was so hard and difficult. And without my lesbian community, I don't think I would have been able to do it. So when I started learning about other labels, it opened up my world into bigger communities um, like Greta or yourself um, with trans partners. And I didn't even know that that world existed because I was so in this little bubble of lesbians and then it started growing and expanding. And that's why I think labels are important because it brought me community when I really needed it. Um, and I think it can be really hard to be identifying as the wife to a man and then you jump into this other LGBTQ community and then you almost get like, uh, I'm stuck. How do I, you know, move and transition through that? And there's so much prejudice and stigma on like, well, you can't really be a lesbian if you're now with a trans man. Like, what's the problem? God. It's just, it's so complicated. And you live in such a intersectional world, not only with your race, but also with your identity. And I'm just, I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> it's really it's where so, I'm going with this. <laughs> no, it's really interesting uh, that you, you talk about intersectionalities is because like just a few days ago, my um my partner ethan had said you know you check all the boxes and i was like what do you mean i check all the boxes he's like you check all the boxes of like intersectionality and i was like what i was like i never had i always thought of my things as like these individual things you know it was like lesbian and like you would concentrate on that but then when he brought it all together he's like you know you are biracial you know, check. You are queer, check. Um, you're a woman. I was like, what? I was like, I never had, I always thought of my things as like these individual things. You know, it was like lesbian and like you would concentrate on that. But then when he brought it all together, he's like, you know, you are biracial, you know, check. You are queer, check. Um, you're a woman, check. Um, I'm technically, I'm can somewhat considered disabled um, because I am hard of hearing. I have no hearing in my left ear. Um, and a lot of people are like, what? How can you be playing cello professionally? That's another story. <laughs> um, being a young mother, or being a teenage mother when I first started, you know, like all these things. And then I was like, oh my gosh, these, are, these have all been things that 
I never thought about combining them all together as something that has either contributed to my stress or contributed to my outlook or contributed to how I interact in the world. Mm. And then when I was able to recognize that, it was like the floodgates opened. I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder I act this way or the, no wonder I feel, um, you know, I need to present a happy face to, towards everybody and especially white people. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, just all these different aspects. No wonder that um, I try very hard, like if somebody's gonna ask me, and that's interesting, a personal question about my relationship with my partner um, or what's going on with my partner, I don't get upset um, because I feel like I have to be open, I have to be present, I have to be able to talk about this. And it's just because part of it was like nobody nobody understands like what it's like to be black and to be a woman and then to be a person in a space where you are literally the one person the on stage. only one right right yes. the only person on stage playing your instrument and you were hired like they couldn't hire anyone else like and that and it's because there's you know there's all this like pipeline thing of like in the arts world and what's going on and people in accessibility and being able to afford lessons and an instrument um so there's that whole you know that there's all but um i i think that when i was able to recognize that all came into play i've actually been able to be a lot more um forgiving for myself um and not have to be this view of what people think I should be or what they see on the L word or um, what they see as a stereotype of a young mother. And when I was able to let all of that go, it's been, it's been able to help me just kind of embrace all of the crazy difficulties um, or all of the different nuances that I have. So Aubrey, did you know that I collect pins? I have this one jean jacket that I've owned since I was 15. Of course, now it's covered in LGBTQ pins. I just finished looking at the pin selection from our sponsor, Dash of Pride. They are a specialty store for all things LGBTQ+, including weddings, special events, and just everyday life. They carry all of our decor and accessory needs. Yes, I can't wait to get a pin with my preferred pronouns on it. Right now, you can go to dashofpride.com and use the code DASH10 to receive 10% off your entire order. Ethan, um, and according to his social media, calls himself a trans guy. So you guys were together pre-transition. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? Um, you know, to be honest, it was difficult. Uh, because like you, India, um, discovering that world just opened my mind up to more things. Um, and it was definitely something very, very new to me. Um, and if it was, it was very, um, you know, hyper made up in media or in, you know, like in movies and shows. And so what I was seeing of what transgender people were going through was just like this extreme that I thought was going to be what was going to happen. With, with us and so they were there was a lot of like futurizing and fear um and i harbored that a lot during the transition through the time that ethan started transitioning because at the time that he transitioned i want to say there might have been a total of like 25 youtube videos like that was it 
Mm-hmm. Of trying to hear other people's stories or there was very little from partners. Um, and then there was a channel called, oh gosh, um, I don't know what it was, but it was a, a, a channel for transgender, um, the partners of transgender people. And it was, there were all these topics. Uh, like, you know, if you were a new person to it, it'd be like week one was this topic, week two was this topic, and everybody would go through the same topics. But since people were at it at different times, some people were ahead and some people were beginning. So it was a really neat channel to hear these different perspectives. And so being on that channel helped me realize that like my futurizing and fears, you know, they're, they're, they can have its purpose sometimes, but I was really just making out to be bigger than it was. Um, there were all these other people who were having the same exact experiences as me, same exact fears, but then a lot of them weren't coming true, you know, especially the ones that were further ahead in weeks on that channel. Um, but it was definitely also a thing in learning something new, trying to figure out what that means. What is HRT? You know, um, what, th- that's what the T's meant, you know, <laughs> for the LGBT, you know, I didn't know that. Um, and then also, it's funny. Um, and then also my identity. Uh, I don't know why I felt like my identity was being, I don't know if the word threatened is appropriate, but it almost felt like it was being questioned. Um, and in a way it was like, you know, if now on the surface, I'm looked at as a person who's being married to a male. Um, and of course the fears of like, will we pass? Will he pass? Um, you know, what that'd be like in public. Um, cause we definitely had gotten some, some people who had a- approached us when we'd be out in public as when, um, at the time was, was female. Uh, so I was really worried about that. Uh, but that was something I had to go through. Um, I have to say that it probably took me, this is kind of embarrassing, but almost like a good two years to embrace um, something that was brand new to me, embrace the changes that were happening um, while they were happening, and also trying to figure out where I fit within those changes. Um, It took a good two years. Well, well, it's difficult because you still have to be there for your partner, but then you also have to be there for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and your kids, you have to take yeah. care of everybody, you know? Yeah. You've got to take that, care of everybody's emotions. Right. And that was something that, so, my, you know, if I didn't know very much about <laughs> that world, that was something that my kids were not very aware of. I did um, talk to them about, you know, gay people and lesbians um, before divorcing to give them kind of a heads up. I'd get age appropriate books. Um, I find someone with pictures because at the time my kids were six and eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so things need to be age appropriate for them. And then, of course, I didn't know much about the transgender community. I was like, there are books about it? Like, I, are there? And there weren't actually that many books about yeah, it. No. Um, yeah, not so very many think, books. <laughs> no, I had to, in a way, create something that worked with my kids. Yeah. Um, and through the layers of, you know, like if you were, you know, some, some kids like to play with G.I. Joes and some kids like to play with Barbies and some people like to wear dresses and they'll do only, you know, females wear dresses, you know, and, and addressing all that and talking to them and kind of reshaping their view on how like it could be anybody who wears dresses. Um, whatever you want to put on your body is what you want to put on and nobody can tell you that you can't wear that, you know, that kind of talk. Um, and 
I thought it was going to be worse with actually my kids um, rather than when I had been thinking about my, my family, uh, excuse me, like my parents and stuff. And um, if they were the easiest, completely the easiest. And it's probably because they were young. Well, yeah, um, kids but- are easy. Kids are very transitioning and with being trans. And oh, my daughter is 10 and just she's watched my transition. Kids are so easy. They don't care. They know. They can be yeah. so resilient. Honestly, like, they don't care. As long as you're still going to feed them, they don't care. You know, right. as long as you still give them pizza. They don't <laughs> care. <laughs> no, but then I also think that's also could be a great sign of parenting that they have felt safe enough to trust you, to trust mm-hmm. you that, oh, you're trans. Cool. You know, mm-hmm. like you've never given them anything to go, are they going to, are they real? Are, are they going to leave me? You know, like that, that they feel that they, can trust you and that they're going to listen to you. And I was very surprised about that. I mean, they were just like, okay, cool. Can we play outside now? And I'm like, you know, I was like nervous for days, you know, like trying to approach them. So um, that, thank goodness, that actually was a little bit easier. That's amazing. That's awesome. You know? Love it. So switching gears a little bit, let's talk about your career. You're a professional cellist with quartets like Chelly. You manage the Savannah Music uh, Festival Jazz Academy, so you're clearly very busy. What is the SMF Jazz Academy? And I want to know more, has there been any difficulty navigating these spaces as an LGBTQ person? Oh, yeah. Um, And I'll definitely be able to tie it within living in the South. Um, that's probably the thing that has been the most difficult is living in the South, doing all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, doing all those things alone have not been difficult. I mean, yes, there's are stressful moments um, when I need to get all these notes and get all this music done and prepared for it to play certain concerts. Um, but how I, I it, it kind of came into my lap into doing something more of um, not necessarily like activism, but just definitely like an awareness of what uh, is going on racially within the arts communities and especially within the classical community. And I didn't really recognize it until I got out of um, school and started performing. Um, Like my bio said, the more performances I did, the less I saw uh, people of color. So through all this digging around, which now, you know, our, our world is recognizing there is this racial systemic stuff that's going on that is making it difficult for people to accomplish some of these things. And um, when I am performing, it's very interesting, when I am performing, like with Atlanta Chelly, they, a lot of the times people were like, well, can we have Jessica speak? Um, because if we were doing, especially like some kind of uh, outreach uh, program, um, there would be a lot of minorities in the audience and they wanted me to speak. And I started, at first I was like, yeah, you know, empowering. But then I also realized in a way I was being tokenized. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's that whole, there's that whole thing that goes with it. But um, the other thing that through my time of like performing, I also was teaching to supplement um, my income because, you know, I am a freelance musician. And so I don't have a full-time position like an or- like a big orchestra does. Uh, like for example, Atlanta Symphony or New York Philharmonic, um, they have weekly concerts and I play with orchestras that generally have monthly concerts. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll teach. And one of the things that I got the opportunity to be a part of was the Atlanta Music Project 
which was a nonprofit organization that worked to provide basically everything free insurance lessons to inner city students in Atlanta public schools. Um, and that was probably the most eye opening years of my life. Um, it was a very difficult job because I remember I would have kids who would be late to their lesson and I'd be like, where did you go? And they were like, I got jumped in the bathroom. And I started just seeing what has been going on with inner city schools. And it made my heart hurt. I was like, they're just because behavior is bad does not mean the kid is bad. And I felt like people were treating those kids as if they were just bad people. And that wasn't the case. It's like, you're forgetting their circumstances. You're forgetting um, the uh, disparities and the, the things that they, they don't have. And it's not because they don't want it. It's because they just can't either afford it or maybe it's not accessible to them. Right. And I eventually had the opportunity to apply for this position at Savannah Music Festival. And uh, again, bringing this back within the South, um, Savannah is the South. As a nonprofit, working for this nonprofit, we have to, you know, seek funding and stuff from these people of generational wealth. I recognize that being in Savannah, it's like these people just lived in their own bubble mm. of of what kind of what the world is like and almost like you know they didn't know what it really what it was like to live in an inner city school I mean how how could they uh but it also sometimes would uh show in their interactions with me and so a great example is telling somebody you know or they're talking with me after a concert and they're like oh my god you, you just sounded so good you know and I was like Great things, you know, like I hope so. You know, I'm supposed to. That's my job. Yeah, exactly. I'm supposed to. I was like, I got my master's I'm in this. I'm supposed to be good at this. <laughs> yeah, and I'll get somebody who goes, you, you can get a master's in music? You know, I was like, yeah, you know, and they're like, you were able to go to, to, to for your master's for that? You know, just as like, you know, they just live differently. Yeah. Um, and I have to say there was more times in Savannah where I played performances and afterwards there have people who have said to me, wow, you're like really good for a colored girl. <gasps> no. Stop it. I, I don't think I ever got that while doing, I don't even think I got that in a performance in some rural area. Maybe oh they were just trying to say something. Um, and there's also that other thing, you know, like of, of wealth, there's nothing that is out of bounds for you and includes your words. Um, so I think the, the, the arc of kind of what I'm, I'm trying to say is I've been very privileged to be able to experience this world that very few have been able to, to you know, go through and accomplish with. Um, I also think that there is this very weird dynamic that comes with that, depending on which city you live in or which you know, state that you are performing in. Um, of what reception you're gonna get. Um, I also have to say as to why I decided to go working with um, the SMF Jazz Academy, which is this after-school jazz program um, that we are serving underserved communities. Um, and you know, one of the interesting things of working with Atlanta Music Project was we were saying intercity kids in Atlanta. And unfortunately in Savannah, it has the highest poverty rates. Um, I have to say in any of the counties in, in Georgia. 
Um, it also has the highest incarceration rate. It's like even outbeats Fulton County. Um, it, there's just some really interesting elements that are here. And when I learned that, and then especially getting on the ground on my first year last year, being with SMF Jazz Academy, it opened up my eyes to even more of what I didn't understand about poverty. Um, you know, I didn't understand the, the uh, emotional aspect of it. I mean, like, yeah, you kind of knew about it, but then the fact of constant living in scarcity um, and exactly what that looks like to a family of four or to a family that just got out of a foster home or a family that just got out of a, a homeless shelter. Um, you know, it, we were dealing with all these things that I didn't even deal with in Atlanta, which I found really fascinating considering the population in Atlanta and Savannah. Well, and, and just to kind of, uh, to you know, follow up with what you said, you were talking about this idea of the poverty the poverty and this underserved communities and SMF Jazz Academy, that's free for Savannah school kids, right? Mm -hmm. So these young kids can get exposed to different types of music or is it just, it's, they can get exposed to jazz, to different instruments, to different types of playing and using their instruments in a way that they may not really be, know about. So I just think that the fact that it's free for students is so good. It, it, have you had any trouble with funding with COVID or are there any concerns coming up? Is there? Oh, of course, you know, teaching during COVID is very challenging. Um, yeah. This year we decided to do this fall semester um, completely exclusively online. And playing online together on an ensemble is not possible. No. <laughs> but there are ways that we can still make an educational program to work virtually. Um, and yes, it is free to all the participants. Uh, they do not have to worry about an instrument. Um, we also were providing snacks and dinner um, all at no cost so that no parent had to decide, you know, what their child was going to do based on either their financial burden or time burden. Um, you know, like getting your kid ready to, to eat dinner is like, a whole thing in itself, let alone actually making food that they like and that they're going to consume. Um, we didn't even want the parents to worry about that. We wanted them. That's amazing. Just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. It's a. It's a really neat program, um, and I'm really proud to be a part of it. As a music educator, we don't get to learn about poverty. Uh, we no. don't get to learn what the foster care system is like, um, mm -hmm. and in particular, in your city that you're at. And we decided to offer some professional development to some people or to our teachers to expose them to that. And I have to say, it was mind blowing for everybody. And the other thing that was very interesting about this year is we changed up our um, artist instructors. Um, we decided to have our artist instructors look and represent more of the community that we were serving. And we hope that'll have a positive approach. But even with people who looked like the kids that the kids who were going through poverty and things like this, how it was mind blowing even for them. Yeah. Um, to learn about poverty rate and um, to learn about scarcity. Well, and, it, and it's, it's hard for kids to know that they could have a career in that or advance in that if they don't see themselves um, up there on stage. Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, but Allison, my fiance, she is a music educator at a public school here in Texas. She's a band director for a high school level, and I've been learning so much. But one of the things that I feel like I struggle with is 
navigating that space um, as a public school teacher because we're a queer couple. You know, there's a lot of no-nos, like I can't touch her in public. I, she can't refer to me as anyone else but that person because we're afraid that she will piss off the wrong parent and then she'll get fired. Um, so my question for you is when you're nav navigating queer spaces, when you and Ethan basically look, and I say air quotes, like a typical straight passing couple, how, how is that? And then reverse way, how is that when you're navigating just everyday life as a queer couple? Um, it has actually been a recent topic for us of, of almost feeling like invisible. Um, but one of the things that I do is I, I try to subtly incorporate it into my life. Um, so I choose to call my partner, my partner, um, instead of my husband. Um, and uh, one of the things that we started doing, um, you know, that we sometimes have on Zoom is placing our pronouns. Um, I have that going on in front of students, just kind of like those subtle subtleties of like, hey, this is, you know, this is something, a topic that needs to be talked about, but I'm not going to throw it in your face as to why it's necessarily important. Um, and I, it took a while. I mean, there were so many people who um, would be like, partner, do you mean your business partner? <laughs> or uh, <laughs> you mean, or you mean your husband? Is that what you're trying to say? And I was like, no, I'm pretty sure I said the word partner that came out of my mouth. <laughs> I'm trying to correct you, so to speak. Um, and it, it, it was difficult in the beginning. And now, because I've been able to not worry about my identity and realize that my identity is my identity, it is important to me. And if somebody doesn't like it, they don't like it, um, whatever. I'll probably even never know that they don't like it. Um, that's kind of how I approach, um, you know, being out in public. Um, and also with my students, um, I, I don't necessarily, I'm like, oh, my partner's trans, so that's why I call my partner <laughs> in front of my students or anything, but there is, uh, if they want to talk about it or ask about it, I'm not afraid to talk about it. If somebody does try to correct me and say, like, oh, you mean your husband? I'm like, no, actually, it's my partner. Um, when we first were dating, um, you know, dating and I go through all that, I call them my partner then, and I continue to call them now, even though they transition. They're like, transition. I guess one last question that we do like to ask a lot of our guests, what does being queer in the South mean to you? And why is it important for us to talk about it? That's a very, very good question. The South alone has so many complexities and layers, let alone try to add on that intersectionality of being queer. There is uh, slowly some understanding. And I have to say that uh, there is a community that you can find of support. And yeah, I, I feel like, so I feel like living in the South, um, it's difficult because one, you know, in a way being queer is kind of like a minority group. Um, when I was going to school up in the Midwest, the interesting thing was that when I was going to school in the Midwest at the time that I did, I saw more interracial couples than I did in Atlanta than I did in the South and then versus up North. Huh. Um, so I would see that, that diversity or that difference. Um, and in a way I would just accept it. 
and try to live my life um, as authentically as I could or can. Um, so yeah, living in the South, to me really, living in the South, I feel like is, um, and it could be just when you're catching me on this you know, journey of my life at this moment, but I feel like there's, it's a lot of adversity. Um, there's a lot of difficulty that can go into it, but as long as I'm doing things that are making me happy and I feel confident with what I'm doing and what I'm doing that makes me happy, that that's, that's enough for me. Amazing. Yes. Love that so much. So good. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, to keep up with them, you can find them at Instagram and Twitter at just to play cello. That's two, the number two. And at Jessica, and I'm going to spell out your last name, M-E-S-S-E-R-E dot com. We'll put it in the description box of our um, episode as well as in our blog post. Learn more about the Savannah Music Festival and SMF Academy at www.savannahmusicfestival.org. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Pleasure's all mine. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, dashofpride.com If you're interested in sponsoring the show or just have general feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at southernqueriespod at gmail.com We'd like to close the show with some music from the quartet Jessica plays with. This is Atlanta Celli, and you can keep up with them at atlantacelli.com You can find more information about the show and our guests at southernqueries.com We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This show is hosted, written, and edited by India Bastian and Aubrey Calvin. The theme song is mixed by Allison Holly. India is responsible for the website and our social media, and Aubrey is responsible for the show research. <laughs>